Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say. Hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jason Rosenbaum. Alongside me in studio in St. Louis is... Joe Manis. And our special guest who's wearing a fantastic purple sport <laughs> coat with the name of his fraternity on it. Omega Seth Fraternity Incorporated. And and the gentleman. Oh, Rodney Hubbard. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we were having a fraternity on on the podcast today. First of all, thank you so much for being on our show. We have a political legend in the house. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I mean, I, I'm in the studio with legends. Jason, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And Joe, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, way before I even thought about even entering into politics. So We don't have to emphasize how old. <laughs> no, no, no. I it's appreciate okay. you. It's okay. It's okay. So, uh, just for our listeners, so they know, you're currently a consultant. Uh, yeah, consultant, Democratic consultant. Lobbyist, uh, Democrat. But can you talk a little bit about your background? Because you have a very legendary political background of your own. Well, uh, prior to uh, running for state office, I was a state employee, uh, worked for the Office of Administration, and spent a little time, a little stint. Uh, working for the Division of Youth Services. So back in 2003, I ran for office, won by 35 votes, ran against a guy whose name was Rodney Bouchard, changed his <laughs> name to Paris Bouchard, and ran against a legendary uh, family by the name of the Fords, Lewis Ford, who yeah. who was a, a mentor of mine, ran against his son, Tony Ford Walker, and the the famous Bill High. So oh I, won, I won by 35 <laughs> votes, and... The rest has been been history. You now, know? haven't you also been a committee man in the city? Oh uh, yeah, I was. I was. Uh, I started serving as a committee man in the fifth ward around two thousand four, and then I, I left that spot. And then my mother ended up becoming a committee woman, and my father ended up becoming a committee man in the fifth ward. Mm-hmm. So, and is your mother still the committee woman? She's still a committee woman in the fifth ward. Okay, and she's also the state representative. The state representative. Uh, of her, I think it's a 78 district. Yeah, and yeah. for full disclosure, I actually used to live in that district, but it was slightly before your mother took office. Every day when I walked out of my apartment complex, I saw a big banner on the fence with her face on it, and I was like, Mother Hubbard is always watching. <laughs> sort of like Big Brother, it was Big Mother. And basically. my wife is the committee woman in the 26th ward. And your, oh. and your sister is an alder woman for in St. Louis. the 5th ward. So, you know, you, you kind of come from this political dynasty family, so to speak. I, I think anytime you have more than three or four people in office, you can call it almost yeah. a dynasty. I, I like to say if I would have won in 2008 for that Senate seat when I was running against Robin Wright Jones and I lost about 95 votes, maybe none of them would be in office. Yeah, because that be, yeah, I don't want to relive too much bad memories here <laughs> because that seems to be like the only loss like your family has ever suffered electorally. Is that true? Uh, that is true. Yeah, and that was an interesting... I mean, her good friends to this day. Yeah, and that's Robin. the interesting yeah. thing. You, you and Robin Wright Jones have buried the hatchet. Yeah. I think your son and her grandson go to the same high yeah, school now. Yeah, they were now. 10 CBC together so I used to see my son and, and Damon, which is Robin's son. Right, right. Both our sons played for CBC and played on the football team. But, so. but I wanted to use this as a jumping off point because back in the 2000s, when I was just starting out reporting on Jefferson City politics, and I noticed that there was a pretty stark divide 
between uh, lawmakers like you who are a little bit more pragmatic, sometimes worked with Republicans, were more favorable to quote-unquote school choice, and then people like now former Senator Wright Jones who were opposed to that, or maybe even former Senator Maida Coleman who was also kind of in that camp, and you're apparently also good friends with her now. Right. Uh, what do you, What was it like back then? Why was there such this personal you know, stark divide within the St. Louis political black community there. I, I think it was just, uh, you know, it was something new. You, you you have to remember a lot of a lot of African Americans, when you talk about the public school system, that's like a sacred cow. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, even, even in my family and even in with my in-laws, you have a lot of people in your family who worked in the St. Louis public school system, and that was the only way for them to really, you know, receive gainful employment. So you had people who were legendary in the fields of science and arts and mathematics, but the only place they could get a job was in, you know, through the public education realm. So they were they came from Maida Coleman and, and Robin Wright Jones. They were brought up a different way, and they felt that any approach to education reform was attack on, on public education. So I think it was just a lot of uh, mixed information uh, put out there, but I think due to uh, President Obama getting elected and his secretary of education at that time, Oni Duncan, was pushing education reform and the race to the top mm-hmm. program, and that kind of educated more folks in the state legislature. Because one of the things that I've noticed is I think I still think there's a lot of infighting within the St. Louis black community, but I don't really know if it's issue based anymore. I, I my Rosetta Stone perhaps is that Chris Carter Sr. Joshua Peters race where there didn't seem to be any difference between them on issues, but it was all about personalities and you know, personal beefs and, you know, That's Congressman true. Clay. Have you noticed that as well? I, I've noticed that it was kind of like this faction against that faction and, you know, who was going to maintain the power. But, you know, going back to your initial question with the education reform issue, you look at uh, Senator Jamila Nasheed and Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal. If you look back in 2006, they were totally against anything that dealt with education reform. Certainly, Chappelle Nadal, and yeah. we've talked, we've asked her that question, and she says that she's basically changed on that issue. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I would like to make clear is that I think this is not necessarily a racial issue, as far as the the splits within the St. Louis area delegation. I think a lot of it is generational, because you see this among the the white legislators and lawmakers as well. I, Roddy and I were talking before we went on the air how 20 years ago uh, in South St. Louis, John Scott ruled. He was a state senator. And anybody, um, any uh, white lawmaker, anybody even looking to run for office. Yeah, they white, you. They had, you had to have the approval of Scott or Red Villa back in the day, who was a legendary alderman who I was lucky enough to know, Tom Villa's father. So my point being is that there used to be this hierarchy. Oh, Marty Abusi. Right. Yes, there used to be this hierarchy. Regardless of race, it was generational. There was uh, the kingmakers, so to speak. And then gradually things changed as the new generations came up. And on the north side, you have to have the, the approval of, of the congressman. Jeff, the congressman or Senator Jeb Banks or individuals like that. Yeah. To say, hey, yeah, you're cause a guy. I remember covering St. Louis Board of Aldermen meetings where Jet Banks would literally stand there in the room, not just like off in a side room, in the room. Uh, watching to make sure i mean he would like be two feet from let's say the roberts brothers when they were both aldermen <laughs> to make sure that they voted the way he wanted on certain things i, I mean 
the uh, elder congressman, uh, Bill Clay Sr., he didn't do that. He didn't have to do that. Well, for one thing, his brother was a alderman for a lot of the time. But the point is, is that it was very much, you know, there it, it was no secret about who was in charge. No. Now I think it's it's a lot more diffuse. I mean, north and south, black and white, as far as the power base, and a lot of it, I think a lot of it is this generational change. I, I, I totally agree. You know, you just, you know, even back when I, I first ran for office back in 2003, I had to go and sit down and talk with, you know, uh, the Jet Banks, the Bosleys of the world, you know, Freeman Bosleys of the world, to see where I could go into some support. And it was extremely hard as an outsider to come in and say, you know, I want to run because if you don't have the support, you know, you're not going to get elected. What kind of helped me, what, what did help me was, you know, my father and my grandfather all was tied into the church and the, and the community. So it gave me a base, and I used to go back and forth with my father. He said, well, you have a base down here in the Corsica neighborhood. I said, uh, you don't need a base. You just all work. But I didn't show you what I knew about politics. Yeah. Well, I want to use this again as another jumping-off point. Well, you have a lot of jumping-off points on this show. <laughs> but I, I, I kind of want to talk about a little bit about, about uh, next year. There's kind of rumblings that Congressman Clay it could be challenged in the Democratic Lacey, primary yeah. uh-huh. by uh, potentially Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal. I want to play a clip of me asking her directly about a year and a half ago whether she would actually pull the trigger and run against Congressman Clay. Do you think he might have gotten involved because he sees you as a potential threat to run against him in two years? Listen, I want to have a family. I have put um, public service first. And it is more important to me um, to be in a committed relationship, to be in a loving relationship, um, and just see how everything else falls. But that's very important to me. And there are a lot of people who are out there who say that I'm going to run against him, but nothing in the world means more to me than to having a family. Now, a lot has changed. That I asked that question in March 2014. That was obviously before she got involved in the Carter-Josh Peters race. That was before Ferguson. And I, I I would have to ask her again directly, but it seems like there's a lot of people kind of egging her on to challenge Congressman Lacey Clay. I, I don't know if you're on one side or the other of that battle, but what do you kind of think will happen next year? Well, I think, you know, uh, first of all, I mean, numbers don't lie. It's, it's extremely hard to go up against a sitting incumbent, you know. Yeah, Let's take the Cornerhands. For instance, no one has spent more money on name I did in this state than the Cornahan family. And uh, Russ Cornahan was a good good friend of mine. He ran against Lacey Clay, who's another good friend of mine, and he ended up uh, losing. So Big. Yeah, big. So you have to weigh who has the name IDs, who has the strongest name ID, and who has the strongest ground game. What, what sort of the uh, landscape... Uh, let's say in North uh, St. Louis County, but also in the city, where I think Ferguson, the whole episode, has kind of broiled the political water separate from the social economic uh, controversies about who is up, who is down. You know, some people have gotten more on TV, like Antonio French. Just, just different things. I'm interested in your take on, on this. Just sort of looking at it as a observer more or less what you're seeing well i i see it's a lot of factions out here you know you it, like you alluded to earlier it's not like back in the days when you had a 
uh, a power boss in North St. Louis or South St. Louis. So you you, you talk about uh, Maria, you know, she was on the news a lot, you know, doing the whole Ferguson situation. So she's she's increased her followers on, on Twitter, so she's created her base. You look at people like Antonio French, who went to over 100,000 followers on Twitter, you know. I always thought that Antonio French would run against Congressman Clay as opposed to Maria Chappelle Nadal because when I travel the country, people always ask me if I know Antonio French. And obviously you do because right. I think that you actually <laughs> supported his first aldermanic bid and uh, I'm not really sure what your relationship is uh, with him right now. Well, do you think he might challenge Clay? I don't know. But you would think, you know, if someone was were going to challenge Clay, it would be Antonio French because of the following that he has nationally. He Antonio has the following nationally, not Maria. Well, I wanted to ask you this, and I would love to ask the congressman this, and then hopefully we, we will get him on the show eventually. But during that Carter-Joshua Peters race, I heard a lot of Carter supporters basically saying that the Lacey Clay machine wasn't as strong as it used to be, that Lacey is kind of a shadow of his father politically, that he doesn't really work very hard. And then, you know... The result of that was that Joshua Peters won by 10 points. Many attributed the fact that Joshua Peters is a, was an excellent candidate, but also the fact that Lacey Clay did work hard and his machine did get revving. Do you think that, you know, maybe people may be underestimating well, the congressman? You, you, you know, uh, such as anything, when you're involved in it, people always would want to test you and see if you still have the wherewithal to pull it off. But I think it was a combination of things. I think Josh... Uh, was a great candidate. I think he was a better candidate. Uh, he was educated. He's men him share the same alma mater at uh, Lincoln University in Jefferson City. Uh, I think Josh was just uh, not only a better candidate, he was a younger-looking candidate. He he came with fresher ideas, but you cannot, you know, neglect the, the, the power of the congressman with his organization. But what one of the smart things he did, even when he ran against Congressman uh, Cornahan, it wasn't so much about his organization. It was about other folks who he detached who had organizations, and he built a coalition around that. And I think that's that's what made him strong. But it was the test of who really had the juice in North St. Louis. Was it the Carters or was it the was it the Clays? And I think Clay showed that in the end, he pulled it off for Josh because he was out there. I've never seen a congressman, and I've been knowing him all my life. He's never went door to door for me. Yeah, but <laughs> but he was there. Every day going door to door, it was a must win for me. Yeah. Now, um, one of your clients is the city of St. Louis, correct? Correct. And so you're a consultant for the city in Jefferson City. Now, I want to emphasize uh, minis- major municipalities and counties like St. Louis County or Kansas City, they have different lobbyists or different consultants mm-hmm. who are there in Jeff City and they wander around the third floor trying to. Uh, <laughs> you, press. you wander by your old office on the third <laughs> yeah, floor. Yeah, yeah, That's press. a whole other story. <laughs> we yeah. don't even want to go yeah, there. Yeah, they either press certain issues or, or say don't vote for that. So, from your standpoint, were there any particular issues that you really had to push this session? And then looking ahead, uh, what, because things seem to have changed a lot in the last year or two on what seems to be uh, priorities or what can legitimately be done in the legislature? Well, some of, I mean, we had several issues. I mean, you know, dealing with the, the new stadium, uh, dealing with the reentry programs for, for ex-offenders, and I worked closely uh, with the mayor's office and a gentleman uh, by the name of Rodney Boyd, who you all know who <laughs> yeah. I, 
school I actually report to, fighting to get funded, and we got that funded. Uh, a math and science program that we work closely with Senator uh, Jamila Nasheed on for, you know, St. Louis Public Schools. So it's a, it's a lot that's going on. But the city basic agenda is making sure we get the adequate funding or the adequate tax credits we need for economic development uh, in the city of St. Louis. We play more of a a regional game as opposed to just a localized St. Louis now, city Now, tax game. credits, some years have been on. The, I mean, they've been like the highlighted thing. Everybody's after them. They want to cut them. I mean, we've had different guests on the show who had been in previous legislative sessions been part of a group to try to really slash them. This session, it seemed like it didn't hardly even come up. I mean, low-income tax credits or the historic tax credits didn't really come up. I'm curious as to your take about, I mean, so in, in effect, it was a win for those who support the programs, but I'm interested in your take on why why the General Assembly seemed to be off on other things, weren't even paying attention. Well, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, well, you know this better than me, elections and, and, and politics. It's just like we had a, a ethics reform bill that went nowhere, to, went nowhere <laughs> you know. But I'm going to tell you something, a lot of the lobbyists, we're really pushing for the ethics reform bills because there's a lot of reporting that you have to do, and there's a lot of you know contributions and whining and dining. And most lobbyists really would rather spend their time doing other things, you know, talking about oh. the issues and staying. So focused. you don't like giving like a three hundred dollar steak to the speaker of the house or anything? <laughs> no. Can you, can no, you? I mean, you know what? I just in my level of 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 lobbying and and, and being a consultant is surely is surely based on facts. And relationships. So I think a lot of lobbyists, and, and I, this is my opinion, I believe that 80 or 90% of the people you ever talk to about an issue are already where they're going to be anyway. And so when it comes to the wine and dining, it, it takes up a lot of your time. You know, you could, you could be at a baseball game, you could be at a football game, but most people would rather be out with their families or just taking care of other businesses as opposed to doing the whining and dining. Well, that's a very interesting perspective. And that's kind of yeah. the sentiments that I get from a lot of lobbyists. They're like, well, I have to take them out because, not that the legislators ask to be taken out, but, you know, maybe their clients are saying, well, well, won't you take some legislators out? Yeah, now, 20 years ago, back when they had the uh, first um, effort, which succeeded for about 14 years for campaign uh, donation limits, uh, before that, you could tell right, right after candidate filing, there would literally be a line outside the Anheuser-Busch building. I mean, there would be a line of legislators and lawmakers and potential candidates. I was there one time and watched the line. They would go in. It was like they had a series of meetings. And one of the rumors was that actually when campaign donation limits, uh, it's, com it's convoluted. The legislature passed some. The uh, state voters passed some. But... The bottom line was that privately we were hearing that some of the Anheuser-Busch executives at the time were big fans of campaign donation limits because they right. wanted to get rid of that line well, I mean, because it was so that overt. Was, that was another unexpected jumping off point. You were one of the Democrats that voted to repeal campaign finance yeah. limits. Do you have any regrets about I that? I think it was one of the worst votes I've ever taken in my life. Why? You know, because uh, now you have four or five guys who are dumping an extreme amount of money into politics, and I think it makes uh, legislators uncomfortable. But you have, you know, you have them lining up that are taking the contributions. I just think that, you know, there should be a limit. Uh, when you think about a guy giving 50000 100000 
a million bucks in one particular race. I just think it's crazy. Well, I wanted to ask you about this because one thing I noticed is after you and Jamila Nasheed voted to repeal campaign finance limits, I think I actually remember a picture of Paul Lavoda literally yelling at Jamila Nasheed. You guys were outcast. You were castigated as traitors. And one of the things I noticed is that some of the, the senators, the Democratic senators who voted for this, I know I talk about Chris Coster a lot, voted against it, or voted to get rid of campaign finance limits, but also Ryan McKenna, Victor Callahan, Harry Kennedy. It seemed like no criticism went that way. Did you notice well, that? I, I've always noticed that, but I think when you look into who's getting the contributions and who's getting the supports, and when you look at Democrats and preferably African-American Democrats, they don't get the support or they don't get the the financial support or the resources to run any election. And uh, I'm not being facetious here. It wasn't until, you know, I really got involved. I started getting the support from people like Rex Singfield and other education reform entities across the country where you start seeing the 10,000, 25,000 mm -hmm. type contributions. But if you look at even into the campaign contributions today, no African-American Democrats is getting the 10,000. Well, do you 20, think there was like a, a racial crazy. double standard on that issue? No doubt about it. So, so someone like Coster is able to basically be against campaign finance limits and get no criticism, whereas you are against it and you get lots of criticism? That's true, but you have to also look at his circle. You know, I mean, he's came from the Republican Party, mm -hmm. who was at that time in a super majority right. in the House and the Senate. It was fresh, it was new. Uh, you had people from right to work to developers to, you know, lawyers who give more money probably than anybody. You know, they were out there on the forefront. So you look at people like Chris who travels in a different circle, and then you look at somebody like me who come from a public housing development, went to HBCU. It takes a while for you to build those type relationships yeah. to get in those inner circles. And I strongly believe that a person would, would give you or donate to you $10,000 quicker than they would give you 100 yeah. bucks, but it's about uh, the circle. And I just want to be clear. I mentioned a lot on this show that Coster is against campaign finance limits. I'm not saying that's the wrong position. I'm not saying that it's the right position. I've just noticed, and I've said this before, mm -hmm. that, you know, there's all this talk among the Democratic Party about reinstating campaign finance limits, and they throw a lot of arrows against Republicans, yet Coster, who has never repented for his vote, basically gets no criticism for it. And we've asked people on this show about it. They've given their answers. I felt it was appropriate to ask you because well, it seemed like it's a different standard. Well, well, he did, well I, I think it, in, to Coster's credit, he is very upfront about it. I he's mean, very he, upfront you know, because, about it. I mean, his point is it's not that he's in favor of big donations, but his point is the, if you restrict him, the money is going to come in somewhere true. else. And so he, he may be taking a stance on transparency. Right. Um, and then he's playing at a high level. You're talking about somebody who's running statewide, right? From somebody who's spending, you know, thirty to fifty thousand per election on a state rep level or automatic level, to someone who's spending tens of millions of dollars yeah. on on TV. So it's a it's a different game. I wanted to talk about Paul McKee, and the reason why is because I think you've been following his attempts to develop the north side for a long time. I think you were involved in a state legislative level. I think you either used to or currently lobby for, for Paul McKee. Do you, what's your relationship well, like let, with him? Let, let me just say this. Uh, I've been knowing Paul for about 15 years. As a matter of fact, the first person who introduced me uh, to Paul McKee was uh, Russ Cornahan at a Claire McCaskill event. Mm -hmm. And so I always thought that 
<laughs> so crazy. When I first met Paul, I thought he was a Democrat. I didn't know later on till he was that he was a re- Republican. Mm-hmm. But uh, ha- he has a lot of vision uh, for North St. Louis, and I was one of his uh, district supporters because I believe that uh, there was a lot of things that are missing in North St. Louis, considering somebody who comes from a public housing development. And it, had it not been for uh, the Cross Square neighborhood and people like McCormick and Byrne coming in and investing their time, money, and resources, what would North St. Louis look like right. now? now? Well, what about McKee's problems now? I mean, what do that you think That was going to be happen? what I was going to ask because right now, you it know. It looks like it's collapsing. It, yeah. it, there's a lot of people right now who are wondering, after all these years, after state tax credits, after city incentives, there's not much to show for it, and there's all these reports, including from our own Maria Altman, about his financial problems. Yeah, I think, you know, just like any other developer, whether it's uh, the Roberts Brothers or whether it's, it's Donald Trump, you know, you have, you're have going to have good days, you're going to have bad days. For good one, years. Yeah, good years. years. But one, one thing I can, per- and you know, we I'm just going to be candid and real, you know, uh, as possibly I can be on this show, is that I've never, I've never seen Paul McKee go out to anything and turn his back on it, you know. I bought into his vision. I bought into his dream and wanted to make North St. Louis better. And on that, I think that's where we had some kindred spirits because that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get off into politics as a, as a young man to say, well, maybe I can change it. But I saw that even in my own community, we would start projects and it would take us just now today. It's taken us 12 years to do a a $9 million project of some residential housing for low-income people. So it's hard, it's rough, it's tough. Uh, I think he has a tough road ahead of him. I think that what I would like to see is is more people who are on the level of, of developing urban America to jump in and become partners with the city and him and try to get something going. Like uh, I said, the Roberts brothers, who I've known pretty well for 35 years, what happened there? I mean, now it looks like there was hundreds of properties that Steve Robertson, Steve Roberts owned indirectly, and now that's and they weren't, right. weren't kept just, up. And it's I think collapsed. you just got too top heavy. And if if you have money going out and nothing's coming in, and you land bank, I always right. thought that when I saw the Roberts trying to assemble land, right, that they were doing what McKee was doing, right, you know, trying to assemble the land, which you have to outlay a, a, a tens of millions of dollars to do. And then try to recoup some of your 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 your, your uh, revenue. Yeah, by attracting yeah. big developments. Exactly. Yeah. Is that one of the problems? Is that it's more difficult anywhere to attract, let's say, a big development, and almost has to be like small things. I think you have to break it down. I don't believe in Antonio French approach, block by block. We we'll all be dead by then. I believe that you should just get the major players at the table and say, hey, here's a, here's a piece for you. You you you're good in. Uh, you know, residential. You know, you're good in commercial. You do. You're good in. You're good in attracting the the big big block uh, businesses, the WalMarts mm-hmm. and those things of the world, and do it. Do it. Well, I don't have a clip from Antonio French, but I do have one from Chris Carter, the alderman now, former state representative, and we were talking about the the promise zone situation. Mm-hmm. He was concerned that a lot of the largesse of the promise zone, which for our listeners, basically is a federal program that gives the area kind of better crack at federal money and federal right. programs. This is what he had to say about um, his concerns about the McKee project. 
we have to get into these um, distressed um, areas. We, I mean, where, where, where folks actually live. Um, not these proposed huge plans um, where it, it, it's, it's, it's not in detail of what's going to exactly happen. Because right now, I think that anything with uh, anything that the city has going on with McKee should be on hold because of his uh, financial standings uh, all around the state and all around the country. There are more than just Chris Carter and Antonio French who feel that the city and the state should stop giving McKee incentives. What do you say about that? I think Chris Carter and Antonio French are a joke. How, why? Seriously. And the reason I say that is because... You look at the crime rate in the city of St. Louis. You look at the zip code over there with Antonio French, all the murders that are taking place every day. You look at what's going on in Chris Carter's war. I don't hear him jumping up and down on TV or walking with, with the chief or walking with the mayor trying to clean up crime and drugs in their community. But, you know, a lot of people like to pile on when you when folks are taking shots at you. It's easy to take a, a shots against McKee, and I'm not here defending them. But I don't see them actually involved in their own wards. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, Antonio French has some of the biggest gang activity over there in his ward. Chris Carter has more drugs being sold in his ward. And I just see him just lapping on against Paul. I don't think anything should happen in North St. Louis because of Paul. Well, what are you doing in your community? And when you talk about uh, development, what type of development are they having? What, they have a ribbon-cutting ceremony for a gas station? I mean, what type of... What type of communities are they building? What what do you see them at? And so when I hear from people like Antonio French or, or Chris Carter, here's this man, Paul McKinnon. Like I said, I'm not taking up for him. He put out $100 bucks of his own money. To me, I wouldn't have done it, but he did it. And was he going to make money off the deal? Of course he was. But what type of development do they have going on in that neighborhood? And if you look at right through that neighborhood, do me a favor. Oh, yeah. Ride through the neighborhood and tell me what you see. You see uh, storefront churches, you see gas stations, and you see liquor stores. But How I've, many I've jobs driven through the McKee the footprint, too, and I'm not seeing much either right there. And I understand that there's a lot of challenges there. I understand that there was a lawsuit that probably That's kept them from doing things. But, I mean, a normal, maybe non-politically I, involved person is I, wondering where where is this development I that agree, was promised. Jason, and I guess why I'm so passionate about it is because... It's a neighborhood that I still live in. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And you know, and I, I've, you know, I've walked over dead bodies growing up. I've seen guys die with, with, you know, uh, needles in their veins. You know, and seeing childhood friends getting their brains blew out on my way to school. Mm-hmm. So, when you start talking about North St. Louis, it, it becomes very passionate to me. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people attack Paul. Like I said, I'm not here even defending them. You, you, you made some valid points, but what's the solution? I mean, we all could talk about Paul McKee. We could talk about tax credits. We could talk about North St. Louis. But if you truly believe that St. Louis is the economic engine for the state of Missouri, if it's not Paul, we'll bring somebody else in. Who else is going to develop money and try to fight for this? What is it, the geospatial? The yeah. national they're, geospatial. They're against that, and that's going to bring how many millions of dollars to the city of St. Louis? I've seen those gentlemen be against St. Louis on every turn. If I was Paul, you know what I would do? Mm-hmm. Or any other developer, I would go to the city and say, hey, here's my land. Give me my money back. I'm headed to Brooklyn. I think they want some development. I'm out of here. Well, hopefully we'll have both of those gentlemen on the show eventually to respond. But we only have a few minutes left. I kind of wanted to get your take on uh, maybe politics a little bit more distantly. 
We had the uh, mayor of St. Louis, Francis Slay, on St. Louis on the air last week. He was asked by Don Marsh whether there would be a fifth term in his horizon, and he said yes as of now. Yeah, he's been talking about that for a while. A couple of things that I want to ask. Um, you know, I, I, from what I gather, I think that you were supportive of Mayor Slay for his fourth term, and, as, so. and as was your, your sister and your mother as well, and I assume also your dad, the committeeman. Do you think, though, after, you know, the stadium situation with crime going as, as it is now, do you think he's in a slightly more tenuous position going in for a fifth term? Well, I think, first of all, um, I commend Mayor Francis Slay for all the hard work he's done. And my history with him dates back over 20-some years. I didn't even know him when I started getting involved in politics, but I was always uh, a friend of his father's. You know, when I was young, growing up in the community, he would give uh, ex-offenders and drug addicts jobs and get, help get them off the street. So... That's how my relationship with the mayor began to develop before he was even the mayor. So I think any time you're in a political arena and you're holding one particular office and you stay around too long, you, your supporters as well as the community may become lethargic uh, when it comes to you representing them. But just to be totally honest with you, I don't know who else out there really has the uh, capacity, the machine, can raise the money or understand you know, development or the the school system or even the crime issue, who's ready to to take on being the mayor of the yeah. city of Saint Louis? And I think that's a travesty. I think that's I think that's sad because when you look at the the talent pool, I mean, who are you going to go get? Well, we could speculate all we want, but I did want to touch. And who can win? And who can yeah, win? Okay, yeah. And now, what about you? Are you ever thinking about getting back into politics? What I've what I've learned, you know, by my stay out of politics, that I can do more. You know working with different organizations and uh, working with different community leaders, you know, just to basically give them support and say, hey, well, I happen to run to this guy from New York or this guy from D.C. Won't you give him a call? He has this pl this educational model that we're trying to push from Florida. Well, I think I can better better serve humanity by working with So are you saying team. that losing to Robin Wright Jones was the best thing that ever <laughs> happened to you? Because it seems but, like but it, I mean, ever, I mean, I know that there was an ethics situation yeah. you had to, to to get, and you can read about that in the papers, yeah. but it seems like your fortunes have skyrocketed dramatically now that you're not running for anything anymore. Well, I, I think, you know what, that in, in life you have to do what you love, and what I love is helping people. And whether it's representing them or, you know, or holding elected office, I think that's really something for more of, I want to see more younger people getting involved. Mm -hmm. And I'll be 43 this year, but I'm looking for the next 24, 25-year-old that's coming up, 30-year-old that's coming up, and getting behind them and supporting them. Well, what do you do think about things. some of the... Because it is taxing. Let me say this. Being in public office is not only taxing financially. I'm, I'm getting a call right here from... My good friend, Jamil Nasheed, who we've had on the podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah. twice. It's, it's not only taxing, but it's also financially, but it's also a burden on your, your family and yeah. being with your kids. It's, well, it's, what, do you, what, what advice job. would you have for kind of the new wave of, of African-American politicians, such as the Joshua Peters, the Michael Butlers, the Clem Smiths, or even, you know, the Antonio French's and Chris Carter, who you just castigated on the show? What advice would <laughs> I you think have? I took a light on them, <laughs> considering I helped both of them get elected. Understood. But what kind of advice? It's kind of the the gray bearded elder Love statements, this. like especially someone who's gone through their own political battles, but are now friends with some of the people that they battled with. What advice do you have to them going forward? 
I would say, well, I would, I would give him some advice that I got from a good friend of mine, uh, Gracia Backer. You remember yeah. Gracia? Yeah, I know. Yes, I know. When Gracia I first wanted to well. get in politics, she sat down with me. And she said, "No matter what happens, whether you win or you lose, when the music stops and you're able to look in that mirror, be able to hold your head up high, and be able to walk out that Capitol, and don't look back, but know that you gave it your best shot, that you put your best foot forward." And never lose your passion, your desire to, to, to do what it's really all about, serving the humanity. I think what's lost in politics, a lot of politicians think that the people are supposed to serve them, and they should be there as a public servant to serve the people. Well, hopefully some of the people will listen to that advice, but we'll have to see in the future whether they follow through on it. But thank you so much for thank coming Thank you. In. I, I mean, I'm honored to be here. And we're I'm a fan of yours, and I, love the I don't get along with a lot of reporters. <laughs> But I love this woman right here. <laughs> and, and I'm also very fond of Joe yeah. as well. So to close this out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And where can we follow you on Twitter? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rodney or Hubbard, H-U-B-B-A-R-D. And until next week, so, so long. long.